This episode is brought to you by Titleist. All right. So, Martin, thank you for being here. No, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, especially after just losing. <laughs> so we got pretty windswept out there, didn't we? Yes, yes. I think a long time since uh, I've seen two people hit drivers at number three. <laughs> 177 into the yard, into the wind, and I still came up short with driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, it's great to have you here. And obviously, I, I consider you a friend. You know, we're, we're friends from the world of golf. And as I said, we're putting together this, this little series that's about golf, but probably more about life and humans and who we are and our stories. And there's so, so many people in the world of golf that have interesting stories and you're certainly one of them as chief executive of the RNA you're in a pretty amazing spot I imagine in in terms of your life but I'd love to take you back to the very beginning um, of your journey and and where golf where did golf come into your life so um, I, I I was born in Brighton in Sussex um, so very much a southerner and uh I was about, I think I found a golf club, my father would remember, but um, we, we found a golf club on, on a holiday in the New Forest. And it was a, a I always remember, seven iron with a rubber red grip. Wow. Um, very old fashioned. And my brother and I, both very sporty, um, we started playing, playing with that. But I really, I got into golf through caddying. Um, I needed to, earn, wanted to earn some pocket money. Mm -hmm. We lived about a mile from... Uh, a golf course, and a friend and I, um, we went down and um, started caddying. And in those days, you know, a lot of people used to take caddies. And this was a fairly average golf club. Mm -hmm. And there were four of us. And uh, I'm a terrible mimic in everything in life. I copy things, I copy mannerisms, I copy people. And I, you know, I was caddying for people who um, were good, and some were not so good. Mm -hmm. And the ones who were good, I started to copy their swing. Oh, really? um, and there was a wonderful professional, and I, you know, I, I always talk about the PGA professional being so important because this guy, as youngsters, I mean, this is back in the 70s, mm. we weren't allowed in the clubhouse. You know, you could go in the clubhouse maybe to go to the bathroom, but that was it. Mm -hmm. But we'd spend all day down there caddying, and then he'd teach us in the evening. And uh, within a year, the four of us could all beat him. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but without his commitment and support, you know, we used to hang out around the back of the pro shop because that's all we could do. Um, they brought, he, he brought all four of us into the golf and uh, I'm the worst of the four. The <laughs> other three were much better golfers than me. And in terms of the caddying, what do you think you learned from caddying? I, I think I learned a lot about people about how to deal with people. Um, I learned when to say something and when to keep my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot about service. But I also learned about um, hard work and learned to earn some money. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, caddying is, is not easy. Um, and especially some of the, the old bags in those days, big leather bags and people who have too many clubs in them mm -hmm. and certainly too many golf balls. And I think it taught me a lot about values and about how to deal with people and 
how to respect people. Um, and I was at a dinner um, this year at one of the, the great clubs in the world. Uh, it was a very formal, important dinner. And uh, there were six of us at the table and five of us got into golf through caddying. Really? And actually the one who didn't was the one everyone said, can't believe you didn't get through caddying, um, get in through caddying. And I think that is all, I think it's important part of what this game's all about. It's, um, it's part of the values of it. It's about being with people. Um, we're human beings. We like to be with human beings. I think that's why lockdown has been so hard for so many people. We've yeah. lost that human touch. Mm. Um, and I think golf gives you that in, in spades and caddying is a way into it. Mm. Do you remember, how old were you when you were, when you were caddying? 10. Really? 11, wow. something like that. Just a wee thought. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, at that age, no, no. I mean, um, I, I think I got into my early teens. I, I, I wanted to do sport. I played too much sport. I didn't spend enough time working um, and uh, played far too much sport. And uh, I remember a family conversation where I was told, I'm, I'm not going to be able to play golf until you've got your degree. Really? So when I was 15, so that was six years. And I didn't play golf for six years. Um, I think during that period, I started to um, think about what I wanted to do. Um, and it, for me at that time, it was uh, I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to build things, make things. I was always doing that as a kid. Yeah. Um, playing sport for a living, A, I wasn't good enough, and B, wasn't an option. Um, and very few people did in those days. There was no money in sport. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, I would never have been, it would never have been a conversation. So I wanted to be an engineer, and uh, right up to the moment I went to university and did engineering, um, and uh, left university, was offered a job in aerospace, um, and realized that wasn't for me. And I switched to being, um, I trained uh, as an accountant for Price Waterhouse in London. Right. So, you know, I think you have to have dreams, but dreams change mm. as you grow up. Mm. I think my eldest son wanted to be a fighter pilot, yeah. That's only because he'd been watching Top Gear, um, Top Gun. Right. <laughs> that must have been quite a brave thing to do at the time. To, and I think often in life it is brave to change. It was more terrifying telling my father that I wanted to change. <laughs> um, because that had been the game plan. Um, and, you know, he had, an ass he had a view about accountants being you know, green, green eye uh, covers and visors and um, but when, when he found out that I got a job in probably the biggest and best accounts firm in the world, um, that sort of changed. Mm. But it was, it was the right decision for me and it's something never, ever regret. Mm. When you were growing up, you know, we all have things in our childhood that stand out to us and moments, you know, perhaps turning points and the moments that really kind of make us who, who we are. Do you have a sort of standout moment from your childhood that you feel um, sort of spurred you on into that next chapter of being a young adult? I, I, I talk about two things. One is I was very seriously ill when I was um, 16. Right. and was in hospital for a long time okay. and um, couldn't, um, couldn't walk for eight months. Goodness. And that... I think that very much had an impact on my life. It made me quite, um, sometimes cold, um, quite insular, quite 
because um, there was no one any other could do for me. I had to do it all myself. Right. Um, and I think that shaped a bit. But the one I always talk about, um, and I'm fortunate to be chairman of governors of a school. And uh, we have our, this Saturday, actually two days time, as our annual, and, and I'm going to talk to all the pupils. And the story I talk about was um, my housemaster. I was fortunate to be at boarding school, and he was also my maths teacher. And um, in those days, the head of house, which I was, was responsible for getting all the children, all the boys, to, to, to go down at night. And uh, I had done that and um, gone back to my study, and he'd gone to bed. And um, I got up, I was sitting at my desk, and as stupid 18-year-old, 17-year-old does, I had a cigarette. Yeah. And then my door opened to my study, and in walked my housemaster, my maths teacher. And he looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm revising for my maths A-level tomorrow. And he then looked at me and said, this is my teacher. He said, Martin, go to bed. You will get an A. And walked out. And the, 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 the point of the story is more that the greatest thing he did was not pick me up on something that could have upset me. Sometimes you need to turn a blind eye. Mm. And I think that has stead me well over the time. Sometimes you need to face problems, but sometimes you need to ignore them mm. um, if you want to get the right result. So I think those two things really shaped me. And, uh, you know, I, t I talk to the, the pupils about values and they won't realize it. They're 17 year old, 18 year old. They won't realize it for another 10 years. But their shape, their values have been shaped. Um, and it will stand them uh, well if they uh, remember that and think about it. It's really interesting. You know, it's making me think of, of how one deals with setbacks, you know, and what there is no alternative reality, but what would have happened if you had been shouted at and scorned, and which can often happen. And I often think when you think about your childhood, it can be a run of mistakes that you're just constantly learning from because you have to learn somehow and often you do that when you're young and you know and then a little bit less young and then you continue to make mistakes I'm sure throughout your life but setbacks is something we all have to deal with at different points in our life that's a very interesting story in your ability to recognize the way a situation was handled but how do you think you've been able to handle in that instance, it didn't happen, but I'm sure there's been times in your life where you have been, you know, told off or scorned or set back in some way. How do you feel you, you handle that? Well, I think you, you definitely learn about it. And I think in, when you get into your corporate life, um, there's a diff, you learn about the difference between management and leadership. Um, and management is a lot about just getting through the day. Leadership is making people come to work the next morning and then the next morning and then the next morning. And, and sometimes, you know, you need to have a, um, a, you know, a sharp hit and sometimes you need a soft glove. And reading people and how they're reacting, I think, is one of the, I think one of the true ways of measuring great leaders. And you know, it's, it's never... It's never binary. It's, it, it's constantly changing because sometimes you can't not 
let people get away with everything all the time. Conversely, you can't be a hard nut all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's knowing when to pull the lever to get the best. And you see it in sport. You see it so much in sport. I mean, you watch some of the, the young men and women, your boys and girls learning to play golf. The great coaches, mm -hmm. the great coaches are able to just find that right word to get them to do the best or to remind them of where they're going wrong. But you do it in a clever way. And if you can do that, that is how you get excellence. Yeah. I'm not a great believer in it being hard, hard, hard all the time because I don't think you ever achieve um, the, the right outcome, whether it's sport or business. Yeah. How important are words in your life now? Um, it's a great question considering I'm a numbers person. You know, I did maths and yeah, yeah. engineering and economics and accountancy. Um, I, I think I've learned as I got older that you need words to be able to express. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to express a notion that you can't find a word. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I do now for a living, you absolutely need words and you need to be able to tell stories and you need to have emotion and uh, you need to be able to inspire people mm -hmm. and at the same time then be very commercial if you're dealing with. And it's, I always talk to my, my senior manager and I say the great skill is being able to tune the same message to different people and be able to realize what they want to hear. So if you're talking to a, you know, a board member, a chairman of the board, mm -hmm. you want to tune the message one way. If you're talking to a member of your staff, about the same, you need to tune it a different way. Mm -hmm. That's a great skill, mm -hmm. but that's all about words. It's really, it's very interesting. And I'm sure now in the position you're in as chief executive of the RNA, many people will look up to you and be inspired by you as a leader. I'm wondering who has been your biggest inspiration through your life? Perhaps there's multiple. Yeah, um, I, I always think of, yeah, there are lots of people, three, three people really that um, I think shape that. Two of them we've talked about, my father. Um, my father left school at 15, was an electrician. Um, in London, um, formed his own business when he was in early 20s, um, met my mother when they were at school, um, and family was very important, and, um, and ambition was very important. My maths teacher, yeah. probably the most inspirational from just that one evening, mm -hmm. um, but I did, as the years gone by, I learned a lot more. And then I, I, I had great fortune, I worked for um, an American, um, who was an extraordinary man and he was hired to build a business from scratch in the city. Well, I, I spent 30 years in, in London in the city and um, I came in as his CFO and his, uh, his ability was you could go in in a really bad mood, really down, and you'd walk out wanting to kick the door down and get on with it. And he had this ability, a bit like what you were just saying about words, and how to inspire people. Mm. And um, I learned a lot from him. And very sadly, he was very successful. We got the bank to be profitable. And then he went home for Christmas and flew his airplane into a mountain and died. Um, and I, to this day, wonder what, what, what would have been if he hadn't. But that doesn't matter. That's, mm. that's life. Gosh. 
Let's go back to the the moment you were talking about going off to university, the clubs were put to one side. When did golf come back into your life? The day after I graduated. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, very much so. I mean, I, I, I played a lot of sport, but like you did, not as well as you did. Um, but to me, golf was always the best sport. Um, it was always the most complete sport. I love running. I love playing squash. Um, I love athletics, all, the, all those sorts of things. But they're very, they're quite binary sports in one way. Mm-hmm. Um, golf is just that was always just so much more complex mm-hmm. um, and so much more unpredictable. Mm-hmm. You could train brilliantly and turn up and play terribly, mm-hmm. which in generally in most other sports doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. If you train well, you will perform. Mm-hmm. Um, so golf... Golf was always the thing I loved uh, more than any other sport, um, but it was right to stop. I needed to get my. You need to get your exams. If you, I, I do worry as the CEO, of the RNA. We you know we 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 invest huge amounts in young amateurs, and our job is to let them create dreams, see how good they are. But I do wonder whether some of them have an unrealistic expectation of the professional world, mm-hmm. and the professional world. They are very good. And I often talk about, I think there are probably 500 men and a lot less women mm-hmm. who make a living from playing golf in the world. Mm. Not, in, not in Europe, not in the, in the world. Yeah. And that is a very, very high standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, this is the best game. Yeah. You've met a lot of golfers, I imagine, in your line of work and in your life being a passionate golfer. What do you think, Martin, makes a good golfer? I think the best, it's it's really interesting. The best golfers I've met generally are very creative. They're quite single-minded in their, and and quite willing to express their views. They're confident. Mm -hmm. And I think that that confidence in themselves, they don't need reassurance mm-hmm. from people. Very, re- I mean, these are horrible generalizations. Yeah, um, they're generally pretty smart. You know, if you look at the best uh, women pros at the moment and the best male pros at the moment, they're smart. Yeah, they're switched on. They read a lot. They're, you know, and I, I talk to young people about one of the great things they can do in life is be institutionally curious. And what I mean by that is. Just be interested. Mm. It doesn't matter whether you're meeting someone for the first time. Be interested in them. Mm. Be interested in your environment and read. And that's just being institutionally curious. Mm. And I think a lot of the top men and women are. Mm. And you know they are. Um, they seem to all have that same trait. Mm-hmm. But there's something different about what makes them really good. And I don't think anyone will ever work that one out. Mm-hmm. And and I hope they don't because. You know, if the game became too predictive, then it'd be boring. Mm. Let's jump forward then to later in your life, just before, the chapter before you had the call to say we'd like you, Martin Slumbers, to become chief executive of the RNA. Tell us a little bit about that chapter of your life and did you have a sense that this would be a position that you'd ever find yourself in? We step back a little bit before that. Yeah. So, um, 2013, 
um, I just, uh, I retired from the bank. So I'd done 30 years right. in the city. Yeah. Um, and I just spent the previous decade building a business in India um, and traveled to India, you know, way too much. And the most wonderful country and loved it. Wow. Um, and then we had a, t a change in leadership at the bank. And I said, you know what? I, I, you know, life's been good. Um, I want to see how good a golfer I can be. So I said, I'm going to stop. And um, I had one more go to try and play seniors golf. Wow. And um, I played golf just after I met just before I met you. Mm. Um, and I played golf every day for what felt like six months. And I was bored out of my brain. Really? Um, and that's when I realized I needed to be around people. Right. And be with people. And I just was not cut out to stand on a practice ground and hit golf balls. So interesting. Um, and so I was going to go back to work. But I wasn't going to go back full time. I still wanted to play competitively. But I realized I needed to do something. Um, and I'll never forget, and I was sitting at home and uh, my, my, my wife came home. And she said, uh, I had my computer open. And I said, do you know where this is? And she said, no. I said, St. Andrews. She said, what's that? <laughs> um, and uh, I said, I had a call about interviewing for a job here. And she just roared with laughter. She said, you got a chance? And I said, no chance whatsoever getting it. Um, but the headhunters uh, want me to interview. And uh, I'm glad I did. Um, but that went on for nine months um, through 2014. And then I joined in March 2015. Wow. Um, but I remember we had, I had my final interview in St. Andrews um, in September mm -hmm. and then went with my wife to Lot Loman Golf Club. And uh, we were on the 11th, 11th green when the phone, the phone went and said, uh, Martin, I think you need to sit down. Now you've got to make, they said, now you've got to make a decision. Um, and uh, we, we, we sat, we were down there for about an hour just talking about it. Um, and it was a big change, mm. moving from Surrey um, up here, going back to work full time, which I didn't really want to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I think when you look back on life, it's one of the great, great experiences. And, you know, it's only three other people in the last 50 years have had this job. So it's quite nice. Incredible. Am I right in saying that your counterpart at the PGA of America, who you now... Seth. Yeah, indirectly sit opposite. You used to sit opposite in the banking world, and now here you are in the golfing world, finding yourselves in similar positions. Did you ever imagine that that, that would happen? Well, that inspirational businessman that we talked about, Seth and I both worked for. Really? Yeah. Um, we wow. both sat on the same management committee for um, a while. Yes, yeah, so I've known Seth for a, a long time. And, you know, Seth is one of life's great guys. Mm. Um, he's brilliant for golf, brilliant for the PGA of America. Mm. Um, he's so positive about life and so forward-driven. And, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Both of us talk about the difference between our banking days and our golfing days. Yeah. Um, and we did different jobs. I mean, very different jobs at the bank. Um, but, yeah, no, it's quite, we, we, do, we do smile. And Jay Monaghan was the tournament director of the Deutsche Bank Championship in Boston, huh. which is how Seth got to know Jay Monaghan. Right. So Deutsche Bank runs through it's there quite a lot of the golfing. In the fabric. Yeah. What are the similarities, Martin, between working in the banking world and working in the golfing world? Do you know, I think the, 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 
the banking world is, especially the, when I was in it in the sort of the, um, the 90s, um, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, um, it, it was masters of the universe was a, you know, a phrase that was used in, a, in books. Um, and we were hugely confident. And I always used to say, you know, the brightest people are working in, in, in investment banking. Um, I think what's really interesting on the Gulf side is people don't realize at the top level, who, people who run this game are as good as any business in the world um, in terms of their intellect, their ability for strategy, their relationship capability. You know, the game is very lucky to have those people running these organizations and the tours, really smart people. But the big difference is in golf, they like to get on. We like to socialize. In banking, it was just competitive, competitive, competitive. Right. Um, and I think the golf world is just so much more collaborative. Mm. Um, yeah, we all have our own businesses and we do our own thing. And we, but we've got this core, this sort of thread through everything we do, which is the game of golf. Mm -hmm. And we all play golf together. Mm -hmm. um, and I was saying to you earlier, it's the whole point about I don't genuinely believe and passionately believe that if you have one of the great jobs in golf or you work in the best part of golf, whether it's the media or whether it's a governing body or whether it's a tour, if you genuinely do it to believe in growing the game, mm -hmm. then you must play. How can you look um, a young boy or a young guy, a girl in the eye and say, you know, play golf? or talk about the game, or be passionate about the game, or wax lyrical about a brilliant golf shot, if you don't go and play yourself. It's only, you know, if you're commentating when you are, you bring, you know what a good golf shot looks like. Mm -hmm. You play golf. Um, if you didn't play golf, you couldn't call a good golf shot. Yeah. And you see it a lot in, the, in, in club golf, going back to the sort of the good amateurs. The trouble is, the difference, I mean, the average handicap in, 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 the, in the men's game is 18. Well, an 18 handicapper has got no comprehension of a two handicapper. They think they're great. Yeah. But a two handicap versus a, someone who can play for Scotland, mm -hmm. massive difference. Yeah. And then the difference between that and being able to get a card on the European tour, just another level. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of our problem. And I think in the golf world, and the media world, we've got to find a way to tell the story about how good they players are at the top level. Right. Better. Yeah. We don't show it well enough. We don't describe it well enough. And I think it would do the game a lot of good. Mm. It's interesting. I think sometimes the challenge in that is uh, it's you, people don't want to, how to word this, people don't want to watch the best in the world doing brilliantly all the time. And so the tendency is always to, to lean into the critical eye of how could they have done that shot better? Or how could they have executed that decision more effectively? And certainly in the commentary world, I find that we're encouraged to lean into that when really I'm thinking, my word, that was amazing. <laughs> but I'm going, well, you know, missed that a little bit further left than he might have liked. And I'm thinking that was a one in a million shot. But Hopefully, um, 
we've still got a lot, of, a lot of exciting drama to look forward to this year. And I'm really hoping that the Open, we'll touch on it in a moment, is um, going to bring plenty of drama and challenge to the very, very, very best players in the world. Because although you mentioned how skilled they are, it sometimes is quite nice to see them struggling too. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a balance. You don't want to see them every week shoot 25, 30. No, under, no. But you also don't want to see them shoot 20 over. Yeah. So they never shoot 20 over. But, no. um, but I think that, you know, having lived here now for seven years and, and will stay in Scotland, we, lo we love it here, mm. playing Lynx golf all the time. This is, this is the way to show it because one of the beauties about Lynx golf is when the wind is blowing, which it is most of the time, yeah. every shot there's at least three different ways to play. Yeah. Like that tee shot we had today on the third tee. Yeah. And that, being able to describe that and also play into what that player's good at mm -hmm. and what they're not good at, um, I think is a, is a great skill. And I think it could actually do the game a lot of good to mm -hmm. just, I, I, I genuinely, golf has a perception issue. And one of our missions is to try and change this perception from being, you know, a, middle-aged, gray, male, unhealthy, to you know, one that's more inclusive, one that expresses the game as athletic, and that is good for your mind and good for your body. If we can do that, the game will open up into a lot more avenues, mm. both for participation, yeah. but also for interest, um, in terms of talking to, at whatever level, mm. if it's good for your body, it's good for your mind. Mm. Um, it's good for athletic your athletic ability. I genuinely believe golf has an opportunity to be the biggest participation sport in the world. Wow! But we need to change that perception. I know within that, and you've touched on it already. You're you've had a, a big mission to encourage more women and families to play golf, and the Women's Golf Charter is a part of that within the RNA. Why is that so important to you, Martin? Um, I. I it was critical to me in that, so critical that I accepted this job at the same time that the RNA was voting to whether it wanted to become a mixed club. Right. And I wouldn't have signed my contract if it hadn't voted to become a mixed club. Wow. Because I do think that the game, we, we need to take the game to being much more of a mass participation sport. And I, I genuinely, I mean, I've played club golf all my life. That's all I've done. Family and business was way more important to me. Um, and if I'm honest, I, I've taken from golf all my life. Made great friends. Yeah. This job, in many ways, was this balance for me of interesting my, my, my sort of commercial interest in, in, um, about how to, how to run a business, but also into a game I love. And I was determined that I would leave the game better than I started. And to do that, we need more families playing. The crude numbers were you know, seven, eight years ago that the average age of uh, golf clubs were in there approaching 60. And um, 87 to um, 85 to 87% male. Yeah. Um, and golf clubs are getting older and older, not getting younger. Mm -hmm. So where's the game going to be in 10 years if you left it like that? Mm -hmm. So we needed to find a way, in my opinion, mm -hmm. to actually get younger generation playing. 
And the way to do that was to get families. And the way to do that was to make the game more inclusive and have more women playing. And if we do that, the game will grow and thrive. And it's, you know, you can tell, you know, a lot of people say to me, what's the purpose of the RNA? Why does the RNA exist? And a lot of people think, make the rules, run the open championship. Actually, if you look what we publish as, as our purpose is to make the game more inclusive um, and ensure it's thriving 50 years from now. And if it's thriving 50 years from now, it needed to be, it needs to be much more family orientated. And that's what I was so passionate about. And that's what I think is the future. And I think we're beginning to make some great strides. Yeah. Seven years into making those strides, how many more do you think you're going to need to get it to where you feel, feel like mission accomplished? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> sometimes I wish I was 20 years younger and sometimes I wish I wasn't 20 years younger. I, I think it's, I think the game, you know, like every, everything, it's evolving. Um, and I think uh, there's a group of people around the world that we've talked about and all these other bodies that share the same passion mm. um, for it. And I think it's now unstoppable. Um, and I'll keep pushing it as hard as I can. Mm for as long as I've got the energy and the enthusiasm to keep doing so, um, because it's worth it. Well, this year in 2022, we've got two very exciting tournaments to look forward to along with all the rest, but the 150th Open coming to St Andrews <laughs> and the AIG Women's Open being played at Muirfield, which is something we never thought we'd say, perhaps. How much are you looking forward to, to those two? Oh, it's gonna be, I suppose I'd be quite pleased when they're over. Um, <laughs> but no, I think they're both. I think they're both real milestones for the game. But let's just talk about Muirfield. Yeah. And and the and the women's open, the AIG women's open. You know, the one of the things I've said to people about um, the golf about the golf world is when you're not in the golf world, um, the outside in perception of some of the great clubs is at times negative and you could pick great clubs anywhere in the world. The beautiful thing about being in the game is actually once you're inside, the inside out view of these great clubs is very, very different. Mm. And you know, Muirfield have been absolutely brilliant at engaging with the, for the AIG Women's Open. They're, they couldn't be more creative, uh, more productive, more positive mm -hmm. um, about staging it and getting their golf course ready. They are really excited to showcase their golf course mm. um, to a completely different audience. The women pros, I've had a number of them say to me, I've had one of them say to me, I'm injured, I'm struggling to play, but I will do everything I possibly can to tee it up at Muirfield. Yeah. It's a game changer. Yeah, yeah, it is a game changer. It's got to be a very significant, it's a poignant moment in the journey of women's golf. Yeah, and, and you are talking about, our, you know, there's it's always the debate, but you know, I'm not gonna argue that Muirfield's not in the top three golf courses in the world, mm -hmm. um, and certainly in the top three Lynx courses. I mean, it's, it's, it's a magical place to play golf. Right, um, I've never played it. And, and I think it'll be, it will be extraordinary. Yeah. It will be extraordinary. Um, and then the 150th is different. The 150th, um, is a little bit, is a lot about history. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about history. And uh, 
you know, I'm still trying to get my head around how to really understand why is the world going nuts about the 150th. Yeah. They are and really they are. going nuts, They're going aren't nuts. They? Yeah. They're going nuts. I've never seen so many people excited about a golf tournament. Yeah. And one of the ways of thinking about it, and I, and I, I talk about it, I, use, I, I say it quite a lot in speeches, and it's a bit about my view about the game being more inclusive, is you know, golf started in Scotland in the 1400s. Um, and yes, it was lords, lords playing golf, but it quickly became a game for the people. Mm -hmm. um, but more importantly, it was part of community life. And I think that sense of people and community is what makes golf here in Scotland different to anywhere else in the world. And the whole game needs to go back, back to that, in my, in, in my view. But let's remember why the Open exists. You know, in 1859, Alan Robertson, the best golfer in the world, died. The reason the Open started in 1860 was a group of men at Presswick um, who said, how do we identify the champion golfer of, in the world? And 150th playing later, you're still called the champion golfer. And it is still all about the golf tournament. All, there's all the razzmatazz around it. But at the heart, it's all about somebody walking onto that 18th green, yeah. being called the champion golfer of the year. Yeah. And he'll be the 150th one. Wow. And I think that's why people are going nuts. Yeah. I've got a chill just thinking about it. And that's what very few tournaments, championships, sports have got that. Yeah. You've, caught, you've been called the champion golfer of the year for a hundred and, well, since 1860, yeah. every year. Every year. Um, and I think that's what makes it special. And mm. I think that's why, you know, we, we were going to do so lots of very special um, celebrations. But I've been very clear. I said, once Wednesday comes, we're a golf tournament. Yeah. It's a regular golf tournament. Mm -hmm. And we've got to let the guys play. Yeah. But it will be special. And last year it was Colin Morikawa's day and you were there stepping onto the green <laughs> and you have a big moment when it comes to the Open to stand and announce the champion golfer of the year. How does that, how does that feel? Uh, it was very scary the first time I did it. Was it? Um, yeah, so at Royal Troon in 2016. Yeah, I had a few sleepless nights waking up where I was Mis mispronouncing people's <laughs> name. You're very conscious to get the, the, you know, your enunciation perfect because mm -hmm. you know, the media world will use that, those clips forever. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it is special, it's a privilege. Um, it's a part of history. And I think that's one of the nice things about doing this job. And you know, it, it appeals to my professional background. It appeals to my sporting background, but it's also quite nice to be you know a little bit of um, of our history mm. and be able to you 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 know I, I love listening to you you still hear Keith McKenzie's voice mm -hmm. and and you know if you're in the game you know McKenzie's voice mm -hmm. you know Michael Benalek's voice you know Peter Dawson's voice mm -hmm. and I think that's that's lovely it's just it's a my children they are never never say it but they uh, they're quite they're quite pleased because they can they can hear the voice sure they're very very proud. And arguably, you've got the best office in the world. This, it's not arguable. <laughs> it's not up for debate. Okay, you have the best office in the world. 
when you're walking in there into the, uh, the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse, up to the office you go. I've had a sneak peek in there once when you weren't around, they let me in. Do you, do you pinch yourself in this, in this stage? Every day. Do you? Every day. And it's a sense, a lot of it is, you know, I was brought up in a way where values are very important. Um, and I think the game supports that. I think values are very important to the game. Mm. And responsibility, I was brought, you have a responsibility. And I, I do feel in my job, I have a responsibility to people who play the game. Mm -hmm. I have a responsibility to people who work for the RNA. Um, and I have a responsibility to reflect history. Um, and I take it all very seriously. And I, I think about my role, though, is to try and reflect history in a modern way. And, you know, so, you know, my office no longer has any um, paintings. They're all photographs. Mm. But they're photographs of emotional moments in the game. Mm. And that is a reflecting history, but in a modern way. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to just keep going back, keep going forward, but don't forget where we came from. Mm. And that is a lot of, that's a lot of hard work. Um, I hope that we end up genuinely having turned the corner on participation falling. And participation you know, in the UK has fallen every year since 2006 um, until COVID hit. Mm -hmm. But we mustn't kid ourselves that we suddenly found the magic form that was called COVID. Mm. Um, and we've got to find a way of growing it back. Um, and I'd rather like, you know, all walks of society to actually say golf, golf's a game that, yeah, I like golf. I think that'd be quite cool. That'd be pretty cool. Martin, thank you very much. Thank you, Ina. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Titleist. 